Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Steve Carruthers in support of The Whale Foundation. The Whale Foundation provides a network of support services to promote the well-being of the Grand Canyon River Guiding Community. For more information, please visit whalefoundation.org. And thank you, Steve, for supporting Big Adventures. Welcome. This is Big Adventures with Brian Durker. And my guest today is a guy named Bruce Helene. A lot of people in this area know Bruce Helene. He's done a lot in regards to Grand Canyon and, frankly, all over the world. He's got a big story. I've got a lot of questions for him. And, uh, you know, I think everybody will enjoy getting to know Bruce. Big adventures. Welcome, Bruce. Let's talk a little bit about before Grand Canyon for you, and I think there's some really interesting history that you could share with us as far as your family, uh, kind of what brought you into the river scene, but where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Gotcha. Give us a little background there. I was born in Pasadena, same hospital as my mother, Uh, grew, lived there till I was about 13 or 14 moved up coast. My folks met each other in junior high school, through high school, got married when they were 19 and 20. And was that in Pasadena? Yeah, that was in (laughs) Pasadena. Dad, mom went to Occidental and dad went to Caltech, both as day students. And there's a picture I've seen of me, well, not of me, my folks, dad at graduation with mom. And then I realized, oh, I'm there. But I was just wasn't coming out for a month. Oh, really? She is pregnant. Yeah, and she stayed home with me till I started uh, kindergarten, and then started working uh, at Caltech. And it all came about because well, my father wanted to be a geologist, but there's no work, so he did mechanical engineering. Mom went back to tech. Knew a couple of people that Dad had had as students. Ian Campbell was my dad's uh, oh, wow. student advisor. And Bob Sharp was one of his profs. So uh, mom did some geology field trips with these guys, and dad got drawn in later. But one of the early ones was San Juan with the Kiefers and the Shoemakers. Oh, wow. And uh, that's how she got started and went, whoa, this is kind of fun. We don't need to be doing a geology field trip to do that. And I did the Middle Fork of the Salmon with some connections off that trip later that year. Oh, wow. That's kicking it off right away then. Yeah. Now, were you going into, uh, did, did you go to high school in Pasadena? Uh, I went through one year. I went uh, through ninth grade in Pasadena, then finished high school. We moved up to Camarillo with the company my father worked for. I went up to Channel Islands, Ventura County. Oh, wow. Okay. So, last three years at Aldofo Camarillo High School. And then went up the coast a little ways to UCSB. Oh, okay, cool. cool. Oh, UCSB's beautiful campus there. That's it, a nice place, huh? Yeah, it was a very interesting time. It was in the right when the banks were being burnt and uh, things were going pretty haywire. This is 71. Uh-huh. So, and did, uh, did biology there. I was thinking I just wanted to be a doc for a long time. 
did that. And, uh, well, of course, I'd been doing grand trips. We did, family did a grand trip, the first one in 67. I did 68 with George. I couldn't afford to go in 69 and then 70. Uh, Gooch went expeditions. I remember Gooch went, yeah. Yeah, so. Those so expeditions, yeah. Ed, who is an old Georgie guide. Ed Gooch. Yep. 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 So uh, then he got into the Indian jewelry big time, and it was a wonderful time for that. He had Indian Arts of California down in uh, uh, L.A., so he was out doing uh, trips through Ojedo and all over the, the res, and he got into that and basically sold out to George. I think it was oh second or third year, something like that. Oh, his jewelry business? Yeah. Yeah, it just took off. So uh, George, then we changed it to Oars. Outdoor Adventure River Specialist. That's right, oars. And so, um, now let's talk a little bit about the boats and your connection to the the rubber uh, in those early days, because that's an interesting story. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Uh, the whole connection from my mother's first San Juan trip, there's a fellow named, I think you probably have met, Bruce Julian. Oh, yeah, I know, I know who you're talking about. He did the centennial trip in 69 with uh, doing the uh, photo uh, reenactments. Uh-huh. Anyway, he and George were junior high and high school student friends. And what was it? Uh, on the trip that my mother did on the San Juan, Bruce Julian was on that trip, but he had borrowed a boat that uh, he and George had gone in together. So they had a couple of the old life rafts, uh, one, one step up from a basket boat, but uh, the old military cotton uh, boats. So there was a connection that Bruce wanted to do this Middle Fork trip, and George had a boat, and we went out and bought another boat or two. And those were the is World War II life rafts. They had a slightly larger, smaller tube. Uh, but uh, what I remember most is going out, okay, so we survived. We lost one boat completely on the Middle Fork. It did it in August. They had no clue. It ended up, uh, the flying bee saved our neck with food because they thought they could pull it off in three or four days, and a week and a half later, we took off. So anyway, oh, no problem. So let's try the Grand Canyon. Oh, yeah. so it was wide open to these guys, right? Oh, it, we went down uh, that next year and bought a couple of brand-new surplus life rafts for $25 a piece, took them to a friend's backyard and pulled the plugs, and the things go plop, 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 and blow up. And, okay, all Self-inflate. This, self-inflate, all the sunscreens, <laughs> the ration kits, everything. Good and to go. Ready for the river. It was my job after they cut off all the extraneous stuff that they didn't want was to paint them silver because everybody had silver boats. But the silver paint they went was from standard brands for five bucks a gallon. And so I spent a week painting these couple of boats. Yeah, that, that was your job. While the elders were designing Ed Gooch, it cut these brass plates in his shop that were about a foot wide and two feet long. And they figured, we'll just glue these onto the uh, sides of the boat with a couple bolts to put an oarlock holder in it. And so the, the frame system of those boats... Oh, you actually attached them to the rubber? We glued these <laughs> brass plates to the top of the rubber. And for the listener, this is some pretty wild early days, you know. Uh, the the rubber and the the whole 
equipment approach to river running was just kind of, it came from every direction, whether it was surplus or specialty type boats or life rafts or this, that, or the other. So it was a long progression of developing the rubber and the equipment that goes along with today's river running. But go ahead, Bruce. Uh, so that was our first thing. Ed had been used to triple rigs from Georgie. So we ran a triple, and he, for some reason, chose to run a single, uh, which he flipped in House Rock, but we won't go there. But uh, <laughs> it was just his classic, the line leading the clueless. And this was in July. We ran a – there was a big thing. We almost didn't go because uh, Crystal had blown that uh, winter, and there was talk of people having to portage around and – Shorty Burton had just died. Um, yeah, so there's some weird there, energy. There was weird energy. I think it was the same uh-huh. year that all the Kennedys went down in front of us. We met Martin for the first time at House Rock. Wow. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, but, yeah, okay, throw caution to the wind. and went down and had a very wild ride through Crystal. Uh, but uh, mid-July, the crazy water fluctuations that nobody was ready for, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, and what Bruce is talking about there, uh, the the hydroelectric operation used to have these just ridiculous highs and lows, these real big up ramps and down ramps. And the the boats down there, you might go from, well, what would you say, Brad, five, 8,000 clear up to 30,000 in a 24-hour swing. So, I mean, you might wake up. And your boat was how far away from the river, right? I yeah, mean. and <laughs> you could have uh, height differences of, you know, 15 feet, 20 feet, yeah. in worst-case scenarios. But, yeah, it was a challenge. It was the learning curve. So how many day trip was that? It was, I think, I think we started around the first year. I still I have all the paperwork from that from my mother. Um, I think it's first or second of uh, July. And ended on my birthday, or the next day was my birthday at Diamond Creek, like the 18th. Okay, so you guys take a note of that. Bruce's birthday is the 17th? 18th. 18th, okay. And George is the 19th. And George is the 19th, huh? So we uh, did that. Took Diamond Creek was flashing as we pulled in. I uh, might remember Pete Byers at the Shell Station. We had yeah. set up for him to come down to get the drivers because they wanted to do the shuttle after the trip. So I spent two nights, the first time I ever got to Diamond Creek, waiting for the... Uh, the vehicles to come back. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, I spent a little time down there myself uh, because of Dick McCallum and it was his scheduling. Just the way things weren't, actually. Did the first two-nighter just in August again after another flash. Oh, I heard that, yeah. You'll have to tell that story. But, uh, um, so that... Uh, we had a great time and uh, got another. Decided the triple rigs weren't really the greatest way to go, and it came back the next year. My folks were doing other stuff. I was allowed to join the elders on the next trip after I prom- promised to do all the uh, cooking and dishwashing for them, and so I got to go to, again the next year. And then George got the idea of trying to take people for hire. And all of a sudden, he wanted me a, wanted a hundred bucks from me to go down the next year, and I don't have a hundred bucks. <laughs> uh, but then that fall, he called back and said, "Oh, I've got some bookings for the next year. You're going to be 16, aren't you?" And he said, yeah, "Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, how would you like? Do you want to be a junior guide?" And so I got to do a couple trips in '70 and started guiding at that point. Uh, wow, 
That's a good early start. Amazing history. And now, uh, in regards to the rubber, uh, what am I thinking of? Holcomb? Or wasn't Holcomb weren't you guys around the original Havasu, pre-Havasus? Uh, Pre-Havasus, uh, our lineage went uh, from, we did use some basket boats in California, then the life rafts we were using in Grand Canyon, then George got a couple of used assault boats, a flat nose and a kicked up nose. Uh, so we mixed those up, and that was early, early 70s. I think 72, we got the first Green Rivers from Ron Smith. Right. And started with those, and about that time, VK, uh, I think Vladimir was the start of the Havasu Holcomb design, and the, you know, the design is what it was, and it was successful. The material initially was bad. And actually, a bunch of those boats ended up dying on the Omo because they it was something they could send over and could afford to leave over there. A good place for those boats to die. Exactly. So uh, it went from salt boats to Green Rivers to Havasus, uh, and then getting into the um, Grant Rubber Crafters came out with the Grand Boat, and then Caligari, um, and kind of spawned out from there. Rogue River had come in. I think you guys yep, had yeah, some. Yeah, we had a bunch of those. And, uh, yeah, it was just slowly, there was enough of a market to uh, support an aftermarket, you know, because, as you know, everything was surplus we had before that. Right. So Now, fine, that, that really was a good progression of development of, of it being a viable manufacturer, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so VK, uh, uh, Reich, what was it, Baxter and Andy Baxter up in uh, Seattle. They did the Reichens later, but uh, it was kind of that neck and neck. And then Avon started coming in with the Spirits and s- numerous variations on those through the later 70s. Yeah. And then it kind of pretty well settled in um, eighty. 7980, we came, we, uh, Mike Walker got involved with Domar and came up. We kind of worked on the design of the Zambezi, came up with that. And uh, VK had come up with a nice music, what we call a music uh, trip uh, spirit design. Nice kicked up, yep. real pretty boat. Yeah, I remember that boat. So that interior dimensions basically settled in at that point, and, and everything just started getting fatter and wider. Bigger yep. tubes, bigger tubes, and, and the and the no bail and the whole technology. Yeah, that was huge. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure that one out. Now let let's talk about frames. Now, uh, Bruce, you were real leading edge on the design of what we're using pretty commonly down there on those row frames, bent aluminum, and uh, kind of walk us through your passion for that a little bit. Uh, well, I was trying to row weird boats with little brass plates on them that <laughs> right. kind of got it started and trying to figure out how to tie stuff in and having we were sitting on inflatable seats you know right didn't hold air too well uh so i was just trying to come up with something that was user friendly we went to the classic wood frames the two by eights uh i think that was started around 70 and then we kept expanding on that a little bit. Oh, the whole thing back and forth between pins and clips and round oar locks and open oar locks and all that transitioning. 
And then uh, got to go up to do the Touch and Shinny, I think it was 77, and we had to have something else. We had to have something we could fly or get into planes, and then we got some little tube frames from somebody in California. Right. They're horrible. They're horrible. But they broke down. They broke down, exactly. That was all they did. So that sparked me to start looking at the aluminum tubing and going, well, that didn't work. What can we do? And... I'd seen somebody try and put together a frame with some speed rail fittings. And God, that's a that looks like this got some promise. And it turns yeah. out the manufacturer was down near where I was in Camarillo and uh, it worked, but it, it wasn't very pretty. Well, I went over and found all the different fittings available and was able to go, Oh my God, he's got perfect fitting here, like for the Orlock holders. Right, right. No, all the different in the corners and the Well that teeth. was I, I never got such an angry call from Yost the first time I'd sent a bunch of frames up to uh, uh, Alaska to be used, and I hadn't had a chance to show them how to set them up. And so they all had square the corners on them. And so they got their first trip out before I was up there. I all got down in the Whitewater Gorge, and all the frames fell apart on them because they didn't know how to <laughs> tighten them down properly. And, oh, God, my name was Mud. Uh, but yeah, if you worked with them properly, you could use the corners, but obviously it was a weakness. And that's when I was working for a friend's shop in Camarillo and they had a tube bender. He had a a muffler shop and I go, wait a minute. So I put together some steel versions and ran those in Grand Canyon Uh uh, and eliminated those, but still had the adjustable uh, stuff on those. And so that got the, the bending started and that really made them. So they were reliable and uh, functional. And that just went on from there. The decking, you know, I, I was never never very graceful, so trying to walk around on round tubes was not my forte. And I wanted to have a place to, I could To put on. your foot, I like that. Yeah, and so that's where the decks and the hatches came from. It was just self-preservation so I could keep doing it. Well, and, you know, there, we had kind of a parallel with the stuff we were doing for McCallum. We were building frames, and we were built, putting decks on them. Absolutely. Yeah. Mac was an incredible inspiration. The thing, the step I took uh, from Mac, and God bless his soul, was he was putting hatches on top of boxes. And right. I, I yeah. kind oh, yeah. of redundant. So, okay, I'd take, take the cans out and put in aluminum boxes. But as everything, it just, you see something, you put some you ideas You can improve together. on it and build it. And every boat you build, you've got to live with for a while. Exactly. And then the next one is better than the last. Exactly. And that we were loving what we were doing. Yeah. So I just wanted to be able to keep doing it. There was probably a trick to finding when you moved to aluminum to finding the right alloys and the right hardness and tensile strength and all that. My father. Uh, a mechanical engineer, his brag on me was that I did the the brake job on the family car when I was 12. So I, of course, enlisted dad's help and uh, uh, found some alloys that kind of worked, but oh, it didn't. You couldn't bend some of this stuff, and if it bent, it was too soft. Too, and, or too brittle, or this, that, or the other. Yeah. I remember my brother and I bent one of those early ones when you had it up at the ferry, and you... <laughs> well, that's that's the trial and error thing, and it was finding finally. And it was an aerospace company that I would ship hard tubing to from a place in Burbank down to the other side of L.A., and they'd put it in a big oven, 
And oh, really? So you were doing this aftermarket treatment? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it had yeah, it's a process called annealing where you heat something up and then you cool it at a particular rate. Uh-huh. And that rate depend, determines how hard it'll be. So I found out a, I found something that would work for the corners uh, to have nice bends, but no, it was too soft for the straight run. So that's all our, why our, all of our frames have uh, different corner material than the straight runs. Oh, yeah, okay. And that worked. It worked, and it was very fun watching the folks coming along later buying the, the bendable tubing and coming up with these nice, nice frames and... If I stepped on it, it is fold. <laughs> oh, sorry. And you probably did accidentally step on a few. I certainly tried. <laughs> I, I, well, how'd that work out? Oh, gosh. Sorry. We'll talk about several things, hopefully. Uh, but one thing uh, I want to uh, add to is what a wonderful Orlock you came up with and gifted. You gifted me a pair and a bunch of the other guys a pair. And so we've got a year under our under our belt now running those things and that's a really nice nice overall design and there's so many subtle elements in that design but i I really want to compliment you on that thank you i I was very uh, much waiting to hear what your thoughts were no fantastic and i i of course am glad that i have good news for you with this gleaming report uh, because it would be so embarrassing otherwise on the show to tell you it was just a terrible Orlock. Well, that's why I wanted to have my my escape hatch. (laughs) I'll get you to sign that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, (laughs) what kind of uh, differences in the alloys go into an Orlock? Now, you guys, for the listener, the Orlocks are a big deal to have little friction so that your oars have stoppers and they go down into this little U, which is everybody knows an oarlock, but uh, there's a lot to an oarlock, especially when it comes to whitewater, uh, because you need to have them to where they stay strong where they need to, or at the very last second they pop out. But a uh, lot's gone into it, and Bruce just designed and built probably the best one I've seen, but go. Tell us the story about uh, yeah. include uh, the al- uh, alloys and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've been over to the office recently, but I have over on a shelf the the history of the Orlock. It's about 10, 10 of them from when we first switched back to Orlocks, probably mid-70s, uh, primarily because Terry Bryan thought it was a great idea, and we all agreed because we've been running pins and clips. And right, I remember the early oars guys were those yeah, yeah Mexican sandals and oh, pins. Oh, God. And, or no, the Mexican sandals were the there was that, OU. Well, we had the them too. The, the, trubber, the uh, tire tread bolt <laughs> drilled holes through the oars to strap that stuff on. So uh, there wasn't a bad, there was a reasonable oar lock design back then. Uh, but then the aftermarket stuff caught on and people started making them. Uh, and making different ones, but they all seem to be made for the convenience of the casting. Nobody knew or was rowing them after these things were designed. It's what they could pop out easily, cheaply, along with varying alloys that didn't work very well. Uh, The Cobra came out 20, 25 years ago. That was a great step, that convex ear shape. But there were some things missing. I'd probably wore out two or three sets of those because they were what was out there and the best thing. But they had issues, and all the other stuff was just, pardon my 
junk. Yeah, um, so much garbage. Out and there. speaking of the alloys, one company had maintained the proper alloy, but another one started having it made in China. And they were uh, guaranteed to either grab your ore on the way out and not release it, or just to tear the hell out of the ore shaft when it did make it through. So anyway, I basically just got frustrated of buying stuff that, having still been very active rowing, that I knew it could do better. And uh, came out, let's see, well, it was Brad. Our dear friend Bradford started into uh, all his boat stuff and started casting. And all of a sudden, I'm over there one day, and I saved all my old ore locks because I hated to throw away the good metal. And here's Brad starting to cast stuff. So I'd take over a couple buckets of old ore locks for him to work with, his great starting material. And so he does cast a couple ore locks, and I go, oh, my God, he can cast ore locks. So I literally, well, I still have the scrap of paper that I drew out my design on and gave it to Yannick. Yeah, there's a lot of subtle little dimensional things that go along with shape and size. And Absolutely. Yeah, cool stuff. Cool and stuff. so a bottom line there is we went through a three-year process of making a half dozen. I had my guinea pigs out there and Nancy and I, of course, running them. And I think, let's see, last year was the third or fourth year where we finally uh, – I had to learn about the alloys. I went to the company that made the best uh, orlocks currently and asked them, hey, will you turn me on to where you're getting your orlocks? In which, I surprisingly, they let me know because, you know, it's kind of giving you privy information. Oh, for you bet. Yeah, that is surprising. And they were up in Eugene and had a good meeting with them. And I went through all the alloys and what had been successful. And, oh, God, this modulus of reflectivity or something, basically how something will bend and whether it'll return to uh, its, its rebound and all exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. So determined what was the best thing there and uh, just kept refining. I had to have, you know, the first ones were wood-carved models, but these guys had to have the, the program, the description, the computer-aided thing where they could plug it in and make repetitive molds. That took a year or two, a fellow here in town. I was very helpful with that. And so last year, finally got the first final finals out midsummer, got them out with some folks. Yeah. Uh, we got on them. Uh, yeah, it, uh, thank you. It's, it, there's some real subtle things that really helped. I just wrote a trip with them and I found out a couple things I didn't know about them and it was good. Yeah. Um, and well, well, and I've always championed the P-Tech stopper, you know, the real wraps that I started doing when I was working for McCallum. Those were and that, that they're, they're still working, but the combination of that Orlock and those the nice slick anti-friction thing is really cool. I mean, that is a sweet, they, sweet wrap. They are the best. I think we've talked about why I've had to go another direction for the rental company, but yeah, the P-Tex were by far the best. Because they'd be too expensive for the rental company? Exactly. And well, because a lot of people still like pins and clips. And so you'd be prying off P-Tex every other trip, whereas the rope wraps... Oh, yeah. I, I see that. That's part of the application. So yeah. that's, that's a compromise. Uh, yeah. But if I just rowing uh, straight, they'd be the P-Tex. <clears throat> yeah, sometimes the earlier boater will be uh, a little self-conscious about having loose oars. And... Yep. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, no, it just... It, 
they allow you to get out of uh, not great situations a little more easily and they're a little smoother and just like you said it's a bunch of little stuff are they a lot influenced by the cobras absolutely and it's just making them a little more tractable yeah and, beautiful uh, thing yay oh it's great to beautiful hear. and um kind of to segue that let's talk a little bit about well there's two main subjects i want to hit on Let's stay on the equipment thing and the business thing and talk about private trips. And let's talk about pro a little bit. Um, it, golly, what year did you start pro? It's I'd been building equipment uh, since uh, like early eight. Uh, well, no, I built my first pro frame. That was 1980, the first, which hasn't changed much since then. But uh, uh, the, that's when I built the first one and got a, my first boat. And so 81 was the first season, and basically I started rowing it. It was expensive because it was aluminum, and George had kind of helped push some of the stuff along when it was wood and steel, but when the price went into aluminum, he said, no. So I just did it for myself. I built the first one for myself, and the biggest sell point was we'd I'd have my rig and everybody else would have George's stuff, and once people had got their rigs untied. You know, you'd tied everything in right. individual. Well, once they got done, they'd realize I'd already drunk a beer or two because all I had to do was open a couple hatches and toss it out. And so that was how, that was the marketing for pro frames is the folks I was running with, well, we want those too. And they badgered George. And uh, we made a few, but uh, Rob and Jessica uh, with Azra, were my first big uh, customers. Well, that's all you needed is the big old order, yeah, right? That's what we built in our basement over uh, on Elm Street yeah. the first year. Yeah, just down the street. And so then just kind of domino theory, you, I'm not a salesperson, so, uh, but people saw it and saw it was easier and they could work their system with it. And Was that kind of hand-in-hand with starting Painless Privates and that part of the business? Yeah. It was kind of one-handed. Little, little steps, you know. Uh, so 81, 82, there's a few of them out there. And then I got calls from friends or wherever. Hey, we got a trip this next year and we'd love your frame. It looks great, but we can't afford that for, you know, a trip of a lifetime. Can't you loan it or rent it to us? Oh, well, why not? And ended up was got in on a deal with some boats from Azra. And so by 82, 83, I may have had three or four boats and set people up for that, and they loved that. And he said, well, God, how do you pack food for 20 days for 14 people, and how are we going to get from here to there? And it was just kind of this domino thing. Well, The mountain came to Muhammad. Yeah, it wasn't uh, <laughs> something I proposed. It was just, hey, can't you do this? And I, well, bottom line, yeah. And then, so I think Nancy coined the uh, painless private, probably 85, something like that. And it just it was one of those nice, slow progressions. Uh, we didn't advertise much, and I could just, you know, rolled everything over each year, buy more boats, Kind of keep up boats. with it as it came. Yeah, exactly. So, well, it's been something to watch, and it's been a real major feature for the listener. Uh, you know, you can get a private permit, and maybe you don't have all the wherewithal or the equipment and stuff like that. And Bruce and Nancy designed and started uh, this, what they call painless private, which is uh, they've got the state-of-the-art equipment and they do the food pack and 
uh, transportation and really make it easy for somebody that's been waiting all these years for a private permit uh, really make a good trip out of it because of their expertise and the handoff. You know, there is remarkable growth you guys have had. There's a few other outfits now, and uh, it's it's really the way to go if you're doing a private. If I was doing a private trip, I'd do it the exact same way. And so would I. It's uh, one of <laughs> it's those fun things, and it was uh, you know allowed us to keep guiding. As we know, you don't get much of a lifestyle or. Uh, don't buy a home on a guide's permit and this kind of or salary. So it was a way to we could keep right. guiding, afford to keep guiding. Yeah, and you've got to have something out. year round. That's one of the big dilemmas for boatmen. Either it's is, boats or skis. Is well, in this case it is, but or it's uh, holding up in the attic for the winter and then coming out when it yep the flow. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> so the the. Business is good there, and it's really shaped a lot of the way people go about private trips in that it's organized and it's taught a lot of people how to run river trips in, in a way. It's been really fun. Obviously, we all know there's a million ways to skin the cat, and we just tried to come up with a system that uh, we knew worked and were comfortable with, and yeah. if folks were on board with it, great. If not, you know, obviously most of them do their own thing, but... We've got people coming back for this next year now, tenth or eleventh trip over the last. Oh, is that right? You've got that good. Well, that's the that's the statement of success is the repeat. But um, the the fun thing about it though is uh, looking at how much better the equipment is than it used to be. I mean, we were sitting on old boards with with uh, terrible oars, terrible rubber, you know, terrible everything, and we were still having every bit as much fun as anybody on Earth. We were hooked. I mean, yeah. We would have swum downstream if we needed to. Yeah, to move off of uh, Grand Canyon subject so much, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your journey through aviation and talk mm. a little bit about, uh, you know, what got you into your first plane, what... what where are you with your history of uh, Bruce Lee in, in the air? Gotcha. Uh, my fa- I actually looked at an old picture of my room growing up in Pasadena, and there were uh, planes hanging from the ceiling, uh, a couple of which my father had built when he was a kid. So I kind of inherited that, and I immediately, he helped me build my first model balsa wood plane when I was like six or seven. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. And so I did that pretty hardcore all through high school. One of my biggest investments uh, was to save up enough money over a couple of years to buy one of those newfangled radio control units. Oh, cool. And had a blast with that. So I always loved flying uh, any way I could. But Now, was your dad a pilot? Uh, he was later in life. Uh it was probably 10 years after or so that I got my license. Uh, this is probably 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he'd and always he been enthused. Yeah. And so I I always wanted to. I, I finally could afford uh, to take lessons out here, I think, in the late 80s. And it was a slow process because there weren't many instructors around. It took me like three or four years to get my license. And got that in the early... Uh, I guess late 80s, 
got our airplane, which we still have today, uh, in like 1991, and immediately flew it to Alaska. And Yeah, no, I remember when you guys got your plane, and it was kind of around the same... Well, Tom Moody was, Tom he, he grew up, up as a, his dad was a tremendous pilot. Incredible. And he, he, Tom took me up in his plane and taught me spin recoveries. You know, we had a great time. And uh, uh, yeah, no, that was really fun. So he just kept plugging away at that. I always loved it. And Nancy had always wanted to get a license. And so 10 years later, she got a license and uh, we've had, oh, We've flown cross-country, been up to Alaska, Canada a number of times, and just tooling around out here oh, in our backyard awesome. is just insane. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, been a big part. Actually, the plane just got out of annual here a couple weeks ago, and we got one flight in. And nice. Looking for the next one. Purring like a kitten? Yeah, yeah. And then you uh, have always been infatuated with helicopters, and tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I, I blame it on Broderick Crawford, Highway Patrol, and uh, Whirlybirds. I, both uh, series that were out in the late 50s, 60s when we were growing up, an early TV series. Just always that crazy, always wanted to do that. So finally, uh, after a long, long time, I went around trying. My biggest problem is I don't fit in any of the trainers. I, I literally yeah, right. don't fit in. So I made a couple stabs in the 2000s and got a couple hours in ships, but I couldn't fit. My I couldn't, I was, what, I, I actually are, screwed up What are up those training helicopters, MD? Uh... Well, there's, um, the first one I went up in was an old uh, Hughes design as a 300. These are piston. Right. And then the, R, the more recent, the Robson R-22s, R-44s, I can't get in either of those. I tried an Instrum piston and could do a little bit there, but still not good. And I tried to modify it. This was down in Glendale in, uh, uh, near Phoenix. And the instructor said, fine. I brought out a new set of, set of foot pedals uh, for me to be able to actually fly this thing. I had to have them extended. Uh, but the guy who was in charge of the uh, compliance saw what we were doing and said, no way, you can't change this because it's a commercial uh, commercial ship. And so he said, no, you can't do that. The only way you can do that is if you if you buy your own and then you can modify it under this other rule. And so as I looked at it, he just cut himself out of probably $20,000 of training. I said, well, okay, thanks. And so just played the things the best I could. And a year and a half, two years later, when things were slowing down, uh, got a reasonable deal on a helicopter. And uh, I mean, it's tiny time. I may have three or 400 hours at this point. Uh uh, Is it out of inspection now and stuff? uh, Well, it's the classic. So there was a major AD or something, a major inspection it needed. So I took it down to uh, Phoenix, Glendale in February. Oh, Everything the country shuts down a month later. Oh, yeah. My Good motors, timing. my motors back being in, having this inspected inspection done. Hopefully, it's wearing a mask. Five months later, it comes back, and literally, I got a call two days ago that it's all set, and we're waiting for my one of my early instructors to be free, 
to uh, test fly it and then to fly with me because I haven't been yeah, out in no, six, wanna, eight months. Yeah, no, you want to tiptoe back into it, I hope. So I'm very happily looking forward to hopefully in the next week or two might get down. And what kind of helicopter is it? It's an Instrum. Oh, Instrum, yeah, Instrum. American-made, Menominee, Michigan. Oh, is that where they make them? Yeah, and it ended up it was made by a pretty big guy, and that's why— it's we, a big we old fit, helicopter. We fit. Well, it's, you know, it's it's a light turbine, but the other ones, the, the ones that you've flown a lot into, I don't know if you've ever tried to get in behind the stick, I literally cannot get into a Bell or a Hughes and even an A-Star. Wow, yeah. They're designed for someone. Uh, we know our, our Napoleons over our experience and the uh, helicopter designers were definitely little napoleons who said if you're over 510 you know good luck yep we notice houses that were built by that same guy exactly. when we drill our head into the door uh, head max headroom so uh yeah no that that was just pure pleasure no excuses that was just that thing that i was very lucky to be able to cool get well done. totally totally it has to be awesome uh Helicopters have always fascinated me. I mean, I'll I'll never be a pilot of one, but I sure like flying around in them. Well, I know you spent a lot of I time. I spent a lot of time in them. Yeah. But um, there are some helicopter pilots are better than others. I have learned that. And I want you to be the best. I, I, I try. I try. It's most fun that way. And, well, the thing that's neat is it's lower elevation when you're flying around, too. You know, and just... Uh, Everything about them is pretty, pretty darn neat. Whether it's a monolith you find out in the middle of the desert or something, you can go, oh, yes. what's that? Well, let's discuss that a little bit. We've got a second. Yeah. Um, this monolith thing uh, brings to mind a subject about just our general wilderness and uh, the places that we revere as wild. You know, as we get older, we see a lot of the human footprint encroaching on these wild places and stuff. And that monolith is kind of an example of that, that somebody would find a super remote place to erect this alien geometric figure. And some of it, I think, is kind of cool. It's artistic. But in general, it's not an alien that did it, so I'm not as thrilled with it. Because if everybody starts putting up their little monoliths here and there, uh, you won't have that wonderful feeling of walking through the desert in southern Utah and really feeling like you're alone on the planet. Um, it, it's, it encroaches on that experience, in my mind. Incredibly. And I, I lucked into hearing about this early on. And uh, the onslaught of people the first day they finally figured out the location, bringing in private helicopters, 50, 100 cars. Oh, is that right? It was insane. And so that's what the justification I have to agree with the four fellows. That's why you stole it? That's why they, yeah, (laughs) no, I'm not that mobile anymore. Uh, but uh, they actually you know, let their pictures be taken. They weren't trying to hide anything. And they've come out with a statement of, hey. The pl- picking are- up the garbage. Picking up the garbage. And the place was being annihilated. Apparently that whole valley 
is just a mess now where people were driving off everywhere where it used to be this pristine wilderness. It now, didn't do it any favors, let's put no, it that No, so they uh, took the high road and said, yeah, leave no trace, and they got it out of there. And, uh, you know, obviously BLM wasn't that unhappy with them. They weren't stopping them. And uh, literally, it was not something they really snuck around. There were people all over the place when they did it. Yeah. It was at night, but boom. Gone. So. I, I, that is a good style of of that removal that they they owned it and just you know for for all of us that get out of the wild places that Bruce and I and uh, most of you listeners get it's it's really a, a frightening thing the potential loss of these places uh, just when you look at the growth or the these dam projects in the Little Colorado or the the gondola into the bottom of the canyon or the even that sky bridge in my mind is an encroachment even though it's there when you go by you look up that canyon and there's this horrible thing up there that isn't what we have and, and the thing we cherish down there. We're so lucky being here the period of time that we have been and being yeah. able to enjoy all this before. And we're kind of go, oh, God, what are they doing? But, uh, yeah, I can't blame them. It's a wonderful thing. But the fact that we got our tracks in there first is right. a very lucky thing. But I have all these nephews and nieces and stuff that I worry about them not having it, what we had. Um, well, they're not going to have it like we had it, but uh, we've all got to fight to, you know, keep these wild places as little encroached upon as possible. Yeah, uh, I, I, like uh, you, uh, we don't have kids. I'm not worrying about another direction, uh, generation myself. But yeah, for everybody else's is talking to oh Gary Perry's son the other day with Donnie, uh, locals here, and talking about he's going to do a, a kayak solo support a grand trip here in a month or so yeah and that's one of the wonderful things that you can still do oh yeah that's life and right they're there. taking that's advantage that's big adventure bruce way big adventure, big adventure. yeah <laughs> good on him yep jesse he's a great guy the other thing well first of all we've got to discuss your international travel a little bit you know your sobek days and you could you really had the opportunity, but also the the motivation to do a lot of traveling. Well, again, I blame it on my folks. We'd go down to Mexico all the time and got around quite a bit out into here when I was really young. Camped up for my first time out near Chavez Ravine when I was like five. But anyway, we always traveled. I uh, loved that. Let's see. I was very frustrated in the early 70s when we started doing the uh, Omo trips because um, I was still in school. And I knew if I ever quit, didn't finish And this school, is the early Sobat. This was 72, 73. And Richard and John had done the first Omo. And so they literally were begging boats off George. And that's where the Holcombs ended up over there. Right. And so um, the, some of the pards, like Jim Slade and a couple of the others, Doc Nicholson and all, got over uh, mid-70s. Bart. Yep, exactly. And so then it went away because of uh, the Russian-Cuban situation. Uh, but when it opened up again, I was out of school in Stan and Stan Bohr, and I ended up going over uh, to kind of reopen things in 79. Oh. And uh, did those trips for a couple of years. 77, actually, we did the first Touch and Shinny. I got up to Alaska to do that. 
And then early, well, late 70s, early 80, the B.O.B.O. came in, which you got down to. Down in Chile, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then, well, we got married in 83, and I kind of turned into, a, a, you know, what a professional pinch hitter on trips for Sobek. You know, I couldn't go off and do a two- or three-month season, but I could fill in. So if they had a big charter or right, something like right. that. Right, good place to be, good place to be. It was wonderful. So we kept doing trips in various locations, got over to Turkey, um, a few other places. Well, I helped start a company in um, Nepal uh, that wasn't Sobek. Uh, 77, 78 for mountain travel. Yeah, I was going to say mountain travel comes in there somewhere. Yep. And then working with, you probably remember Jack Morrison. Oh, yeah. Did a Tones trip for him in the uh, mid-80s. Yeah, it's just been really fun. I finally got back. We did the Tecaze Exploratory in the late 90s in Ethiopia. That was the last time I was there. Uh, So it's been a really fun run. Uh, and just uh, are you still doing uh, do you have any plans to do any traveling in the next future here uh, don't nothing hardcore at this point I pretty much hung up my commercial spurs in 2010 2011 uh-huh. um, and we keep uh, getting around a fair amount um, Nancy, uh, Bruce's wife, is is a, got quite a interesting story herself, and uh, she's a accomplished boatman. And you guys have had a lot of fun together. What year did you guys get married? Got married in eighty three. But you knew each other for a while before that, or uh, eighty one. It was uh, I had been working on trying to buy an outfitter early on, and it, the deal blew up, and I owed the local attorneys a bunch of money, so I was taking any trip I could, and an old mutual friend of ours, Sam West, had yep. this crazy hippie charter with a bunch of musicians in an October, and I couldn't get any other words. I think I saw you guys on that trip. Well, that's where Nancy uh, appeared. Oh, is that and, right? That's uh, when you one first... of the vocal talents, and this crazy trip. Oh, she's with got a, a beautiful of... voice, then, Nancy. Oh, it's amazing. So uh, a year and a half later, our our honeymoon our honeymoon was a uh, uh, run through a cat at ninety five. Is uh, is quite the year. That's a great way to learn what sort of bond you actually have. Oh is to just God. terrify yourselves. Yeah, yeah, like that. Exactly. <laughs> well, if we make it through this, we might do okay. So uh, we've shared so many. Uh, we oh, I don't know, 60, 80 trips together, and then tra- a lot of traveling too. And that's been so much. Oh fun. yeah, no, it's I've from the distance. It's looked like you had everything pretty figured out. The two of you. We're extremely lucky. Looking good. Well, uh, we're out of time, so to speak, but uh, thanks for being here, Bruce. And uh, it's a pleasure to catch up with you and, and talk about a lot of these things that a lot of people don't know about Bruce, you know? <laughs> You've been very generous. I appreciate you sitting in. Well, thank you. And I, I'm just very happy to. I, the Orlock thing was really fun, and it was something to share with the party. Oh, I, I think it's a signature, though, of, of you know, your technical outlook on on equipment and i've always admired that oh thank you um i you know this has been bruce's big adventures with brian here and uh thanks a lot for sitting in everybody and please wear your mask and stay right side up
Big Adventures is brought to you by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bugner. If you like our show, please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Steve Carruthers in support of The Whale Foundation. The Whale Foundation provides a network of support services to promote the well-being of the Grand Canyon River Guiding Community. For more information, please visit whalefoundation.org. And thank you, Steve, for supporting Big Adventures.